Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Thank you for joining us on The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change from business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. Now here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, then let's do it better. And this season, we're focusing specifically on data-driven leadership and the change required to realize the promise of the data-driven organization. So let's jump right in. Neil, how do you define data-driven leadership? I look at data-driven leadership in, you know, leadership is hard to kind of box in. In fact, a lot of business terms often are. I look at it within the context of saying, what's a successful data-driven leader? Allowing and enabling your organization to make slightly more data-driven decisions than your competitors. That's it. It's not perfection. It's not every decision. It's not being able to to find and capture data for every possible situation and remove all the risk. It's simply knowing that a lot of business is simply doing better than your peers, having a more attractive product at a more attractive price, or having a slightly better relationship with your customers. And so by virtue of that, simply being able to use data to drive more decisions in your organization versus the other people you're competing with in the market is enough to say you're a successful leader. Interesting. And we're definitely going to dig into this. No, we can. We can. It's part of the fun. That's right. But first, for those of you who don't know him, Neil Hoyne is the chief measurement strategist at Google. He's a senior fellow at the Wharton Business School and the author of the new book, Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts, which I've read and I cannot recommend enough. So let's get back into your definition, right? We've heard a lot of definitions this season of data-driven leadership, and we have not heard one that is competition-centric. What leads you to a competition-centric definition of data-driven success as opposed to a data-driven definition? I mean, I I sit in a world of marketing where success generally, when you think of auction environments, which is what a lot of digital advertising is, the goal is to be better, to have more information. I mean, one could argue the same about the stock market. It's not to have perfect information about the perfect valuation. It's to simply have more information than the other people who are buying and selling. And it's the same way in terms of the application of data. If you were to look at a situation to say, I want to achieve perfect, clean data, even if such a thing was possible, you wonder about the compromises that you make. So for instance, would you take a risk if something was unknown or would you wait until everything could be validated? Uh, We looked at this during COVID. During COVID in the first couple months, you had some leaders who said, we have no idea what's going on. We're going to have to leap without having perfect information. And you said others, you saw others that said, look, we're going to sit back until we know exactly what's happening in a very dynamic environment. And you could argue that they were waiting for perfect data, that these were data-driven leaders by definition, but there was no data. And so how do you work with that? And so this is where I almost see that there's a compromise. It's giving people to say, look, it's not to say that you're not data-driven if you're moving quicker or if you're still accepting risk or if you're still managing uncertainty, uh, it's just giving you that permission to say, you just want to be better than those people you're competing with. Now, I, I put this oftentimes within this idea of you know, a camper that's being chased by a bear and you can't outrun it. That's impossible. Human beings cannot outrun bears. And so the question is, well, how do you win? And the solution to that problem is, well, you don't need to outrun the bear at all. You just need to outrun other campers. And there's all too often too many companies that are sitting there being like, well, okay, uh, we need to outrun the bear. Okay, how do we do it? And then they sit there and they convince themselves that they have a 12, 18, 36-month strategic plan. And it's like, hey, how about you all just start running like something with your data? 
And, and I have to take that lens just because I know a lot of companies spend a lot of time collecting data and cleaning data and worrying about the methodology of the data. And you just kind of want to start prodding them along and saying, can you do something with it? And they say, not until it's perfect, not until it's done, which is almost a step they never reach. So I know in your book, you advocate for marketers to keep it simple and scrappy and like just start running. When do you start to see diminishing returns on that just start running approach? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you were to try today, and let's just say with the current orientation of the market that I, again, that I live in is advertising. If you were to go out and say, I'm a startup and I just want to start advertising today. So I'm going to just start throwing money at online ads. The reality is that that approach likely would not be better than what most of the market is doing. Most of the market has reached a saturation or proficiency with data-driven decision-making in this field where that approach may not be recommended or that approach may be more difficult. And what that avails to ourselves is that we also have to think about data within the context of a strategy. Is to say, can you do something fundamentally different with your business? In which case the data is being used to answer a different type of question. And so if you were going for precision to say, I want to be able to forecast maybe the weather better than anybody else. And you have a lot of people with decades of experience who are trying to predict the weather. That's going to be difficult to say that you can get started very quickly and outperform them. But in the marketing context, as you know, where the book goes is saying that most advertisers today are focused on short-term transactions, short-term KPIs. And I build a case to say, what if you look at long-term KPIs? What if you look at the relationship you have with the customer? This is something that very few businesses are doing. So I'd say less than 5%. And therefore, the, the barriers do, to cross to, to be able to be proficient in that area are a lot lower. If it was 95% of the market, that's a different story. And so you could see part of this leadership component is not only provoking the business to move quicker with the data that it has, but also giving it the right direction to do so. Uh, effectively, picking the market that you want to compete in. And whereas with a product, and maybe we want this audience, with a, a data-driven leader, it's a point to say, here's where we think data is being underutilized, or here's where we think data can be used more effectively where it hasn't been in the past. So we're going to do this, we're gonna pursue it aggressively and we're gonna capture as much growth as we can from it. Where do you see in this migration and this evolution to customer-centric or customer relationship-centric cultures using data as an effective persuasion tool an effective cultural change tool? And where do you see the limitations of a strict data adherence in making that cultural shift? You know, the orientation of an organization, the respect that any organization gives data is generally where data-driven decision-making does risk that area of becoming data-driven selling. Now, this is something I'm very mindful about because oftentimes people that are participating in the decision don't have the clearest understandings to the shortcomings and weaknesses of the data just by virtue of time and by presentation. I think I use this example in the book of a, of a product manager. If a product manager wants to get their product launched and it requires a committee to decide, I'm always a little bit skeptical about what data the product manager is going to surface about their own tools because their incentives at that point are to get the product out. If they're looking at to say the product either launches and I, I get a reward, I get promoted or I get more money or the product doesn't launch and my past several years of time have been wasted the incentives are disproportionately balanced towards them providing information and data that is supportive of their case. 
Now, I don't mind them doing that, but where I get frustrated is that if leaders are looking at that and they don't have that perspective that this is actually happening, they'll actually feel better about the decision they're making. So, oh, well, we looked at the data. Then the product looked great. What more could we have done? And so what I generally challenge companies to do with is two things. One is when it comes to these types of decisions, to always have other groups of people that are not necessarily involved with the decision, that don't necessarily have any political skin in the game, as they may refer to it, and to say, how do they feel about the opportunity? You know, one of the t- techniques we talk about in the book is actually writing a counter proposal to data-driven decisions, which is to say, here's why we think the data is wrong. And it's not a punitive measure. It's not to say, I don't trust Neil, so I'm going to have these people write this paper. It's to say, I want another, uh, another set of eyes on this problem to see what they think. And generally in that organization, simply having that process encourages people who are presenting data to be more honest about it. And why is that? Well, if I'm a product manager and here's my product and all my glowing numbers and I'm presenting to a CEO and then the CEO gets a proposal from another team saying, these are all the things Neil missed in his data. That's either going to make me look incompetent or worse, like I was hiding something. And so we see that it increases the honesty in the organization. The other way to do it on a more routine basis is if you're you know, looking at, say, dashboards, Oftentimes in sales dashboards are something I'm fairly familiar with. You have, you know, the the green numbers. These are the people that are hitting all their metrics and the red numbers. And the people with the red numbers are generally screwed before they go into the meeting. Like they know this is their time. You know, it's very similar to, you know, the academic system. If you get an A, you know, you get a pat on the back. If you get an F, well, how are we going to fix this? How are we going to correct this ship? It gets more of our attention. Some of the most effective, again, data-driven leaders I've seen are ones that challenge both groups equally at least within a business context, they want to say, look, if you're ahead of your numbers, I want you to explain to me why. Prove to me that it wasn't random chance. Prove to me that you have a repeatable system, something that the other people in the group can learn and repeat for their clients that makes me believe that what you actually did was, as we refer to it in data, was in fact incremental. That you weren't simply there collecting a check because you had some great clients or an easy market. Or your quota was too low because or your quota. Your or, plan. Yeah. or you sandbagged it. Yeah. And, and, and so that question comes up. And so what happens? Now you know you can't simply hide behind a high number, that there's going to be scrutiny. So you need to think about the process. You need to think about the repeatability of it. And you know, the people at the bottom are still going to get scrutinized if you're underperforming. That's fine. But hopefully now around you, you have a collection of data-driven lessons that you should be able to apply and repeat to your business to help understand the difference. But as we think about a balanced approach to people who over and people who underperform, whether it's, and my background is in FP&A, and so forecast accuracy, forecast bias is, is a big deal. And the most important thing you can do to try to eliminate forecast bias is to fix the way you treat overperformers. If all you ever do is pat people on the back for overachieving their forecast and overachieving their plan, and you aren't also looking at people. I mean, if you blow your forecast out by 20%, your forecast was wrong, and we need to address that, <laughs> right? That, that's the thing, yeah. And I have had limited success on this on this front, right? Convincing people, convincing leaders that approaching things from a, an unbiased perspective has business value. So how do you think about helping people see the benefit of of a more balanced treatment for overachievers and folks who perhaps missed the mark. 
I don't think there is a solution for it per se, because teams are motivated, right? To <laughs> they're motivated. They they like we're all in it together. Yes, but I want to get promoted. I want to get my quota. I want to get my bonus. And that's the the inherent bias that we're always going to see just being human beings. The question is, can you acknowledge that this challenge exists in your organization? And can you be incrementally better than other teams? And even an organization that's aware of these triggers, the levers that people can pull, that applies a few more rules and tests a few new things, I would argue is going to be slightly better. They're going to have better leaders. They're going to be running slightly faster than companies that either, again, throw their hands up and say, we can't fix it, or companies that say, we're going to spend months and months and months thinking of a perfect solution which may never come to fruition. And so as you're trying then to sell your incremental improvement to your leadership to fund or to open up the resources for you to pursue, how do you recommend that we bring forward these proposed experiments in an environment that perhaps is hyper-driven by down-to-the-detail sort of accountability and ROI? <laughs> you can't change every organization. I I've learned that. Some organizations just... They collect people who culturally have similar viewpoints. You see this on data and analytics teams, everybody being as rigorous as everyone else. And you have to accept that for what it is. Uh, other organizations, what I generally look at is I say, you have to be able to quantify the impact that you're making. And I think oftentimes there's this belief that things have to be perfect in order for them to capture the full value of the solution. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, for a lot of the solutions that I recommend, whether we're talking about this, this ridiculous toothpick rule or we're talking about things like in the book around looking at longer-term customer relationships, you can put a number on it. You can put a, a measure of change. Uh, even when we talk about levels of data-driven decision-making, for companies that make one more decision using data out of 100, so right now the baseline, at least in marketing, is six out of every 100 decisions. If you make seven, seven decisions... The data supports that it's roughly worth $55,000 of incremental revenue per employee per year. One more decision out of every hundred. And so the question is, how quickly can you get to that one decision? You do not need an entire CRM system. What is that one decision? What is that one opportunity? In which case, the only debate you're really going to have with the rest of your organization is one is, do they believe that number, that $55,000 number, even though it is imperfect on its own? And the second is, do they feel that they have an opportunity to capture it? Do they trust in you, in your data-driven leadership to bring it forward? But again, you'll notice a mindset shift. Just as we talked about earlier, how the book promotes looking at you know strategic changes in an organization, not going to short-term metrics, but long-term metrics. There's also an opportunity here for leaders to say, we don't need to go after entirely large strategic projects as much as we can go after short incremental ones with reduced risk, greater turnaround, and an equal amount of opportunity. How do we accommodate and think about the need to iterate through our models on a periodic basis and update them and come to grips with the fact that the data that we're using to make decisions was right yesterday, but now oh, it's yeah. wrong? That's, you know, I was, I was joking about this yesterday, actually, a friend of mine who's actually has a, he has a PhD in physics. He, he's a, a literal rocket scientist. Uh, we were debating with marketing and I'm generally apologetic to him. I'm like, you're, you're building rockets and I'm getting people to click on pictures. And he just kind of mentioned, he's like, you know, your job's a lot harder than mine. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm like, rockets, pictures, this isn't much for a debate. He's like, but exactly what you mentioned, he said, in, in his world, there are constants, there are laws. <laughs> they, they know how gravity's going to behave uh, based on what, what they're trying to do. We don't have that benefit. 
consumer patterns, behaviors, forecasts, market conditions change very, very quickly. Uh, and the reason, the reason why I always think back to, the, to that particular conversation is because sometimes marketers just need to remember, business people need to remember that this is life, that you're not going to solve this. I mean, maybe if you have a really boring industry that doesn't change for 200 years, maybe, but I couldn't think of one where that would be the case. We are in a very dynamic environment. But again, that goes back to that idea, which is to say, your goal is not to be perfect. Your goal, you can certainly strive for perfection. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a great human characteristic to do it because it pushes you to go further. But just realize that everybody you're competing with is suffering from similar problems and similar challenges. Nobody knew what to do with COVID. Nobody knows what to do with the current market conditions today. Issues around inflation, COVID, supply chain. Nobody knows how to handle it. But a large amount of people say, look, in order to get to perfection, we need to sit and think and be diligent and purposeful about our approach. And months, if not years, are going by. And there's other leaders that say, let's take a look at what the data has, make the best decision we can at this moment, understand how it responds. And then we're not going to hold people accountable because things have changed. We're just going to say, what can we learn from those processes? And so I feel like what you're describing here is psychological safety, learning from failure in a blameless environment, in a, in a continuous improvement environment. So how do you think about the role of data in making those environments possible? I say data is just providing a different perspective. The more data and better data you have, the clearer an understanding of the picture that you'll get. The same way that we look at it with consumer behavior is that it's just observing customers and how they behave and how they respond. And the more data you have, the more hypotheses and observations you can make. But there's no such thing as perfect data. We can go through and say, we've measured everything. These are all things that come together. And again, when you find great leaders in the space, what they're really doing at the end of the day is understanding how to manage tension really, really well. A lot of companies think you have to resolve this tension. We need perfect data. We need to move quickly. And there are trade-offs to each that people, depending on where you sit on the spectrum, will argue to be like, well, in my case, perfect data costs too much and takes too long. Other people saying perfect data reduces risk. Those tensions are always going to exist. Where great leaders are is managing it to say, look, it's not that we need perfect data for every decision. These we need to study very carefully. These decisions we can move very quickly on. We need some people that are going to act this way, other people that are going to act that way. And managing that as close to center as possible, knowing that there's benefits from both sides. Now, I know we're coming up on the end of time here, so I want to get one more question in, if I can. What can our listeners do as individuals to more deeply embed data-driven insights into the work and the decisions that they're part of, something that they can do at their desks today? I mean, I would say, actually, since you brought up at their desks, I would say get away from your desk. So I'll give you a fun, I'll give you a quick, funny story here. Uh, one of the most fortuitous things that happened to me in my career at Google was that where I had to work was a little bit further from my home than other Google buildings. So some days, if you if you know the area, you take get on the 101 and you try to drive and it's bumper to bumper traffic and you're like, it's going to be 25 minutes for me to get to my desk, but I can veer off here and go to this different building and just work on my own and get stuff done. All the same to me. I have the same stuff. And by doing that, what I found out was I spent a lot of time with different teams understanding how they see problems, understanding the language that they use, how they interpret the data that's being given to them and participating in that conversation. And I think oftentimes that type of perspective is incredibly valuable because you understand more about the organizations you're around and the language that they speak. 
you understand more about their incentives, about how they manipulate or how they respond to changes in metrics, about how they use the data and what they're trying to solve with the data that they have. Oftentimes, sitting at our own desk, we lack that perspective. We look at how we see the world and we impose that view upon other people. This is a dashboard I like. This is how sensitive I like the analysis. This is what I expect my audience to do with the data that I give them. You know, I had a, a really great uh, professor I worked with who was very candid in saying that he didn't believe ideas could ever exist in the mind of an individual. He said, because within your own mind, they're useless. There's no value to that concept. He said, and as soon as you share it with somebody else, they will contribute something to that idea, either through feedback or simply their interpretation of it. And at that point, it's no longer your idea. It becomes something entirely new. It's very similar to however we look at the outputs of data. We may look at a spreadsheet and it may make perfect sense with us, but we're taking our experiences in there. As soon as other audiences see it, they see that number, they're going to think about it in different ways. And so really, if you want something you can do today, it's start taking some of that data or start sitting in with meetings in other departments, even if you have nothing to contribute, because everything you'll be doing is taking it in to say, here's how they see the world. Here's how they describe their problems, their customers. And even if you don't have a direct reason as to how you're going to apply it, you will see opportunities that were never possible, either with that team sitting on their own or you sitting by yourself. I love it. Well, thank you, Neil. If our listeners want to connect with you directly or learn more about the work that you do, how should they go do that? I mean, the, the book was designed to do a lot of it. You know, it's like four hours of content, but I also know that reading books and reading data books can be difficult. I, I would say this, people are always free to connect with me on LinkedIn if they're interested, uh, if they're interested in the book content to see whether, and it does follow very much like this conversation we've had, if they want to have a four-hour version of this with other stuff related to data. Uh, the book website, convertedbook.com, has a free excerpt of the first like 15 minutes of the book. It gives you a sense about what you're getting into, but if you have direct questions about the content or you want to engage more of it, LinkedIn is more of that back and forth conversation. Perfect. And we'll be sure to include those links in the show notes. Fantastic. I really appreciate your time here today. Hopefully our listeners can take your advice and apply it to their own teams. If our listeners want to bring these kinds of conversations to their own organizations, they can visit us at blueswiftconsulting.com. Thanks again, Neil. Thanks for having me.